Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Well, welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Today, both Chris and I kind of had similar wavelengths here in the idea for the topic of our show. And, you know, we're recording the day after the 4th of July and with all the celebrations and pomp and circumstance that goes along with with that holiday. And we, we were just thinking about how much of that celebration has to do with, you know, warfare and, uh, you know, military victories and all that kind of stuff. And we, we celebrate with fireworks which sort of simulate cannons and all that sort of thing and and so we wanted to discuss the idea of peace in America and the history of nonviolence in America and how that might just be as american as or or more american than all of those the battles and the violence and warfare and all that both of us were we're pretty much self-described nonviolent peaceniks I, that's how i would <laughs> i kind of describe myself that way i don't want to speak for you chris but Nice. Well, peacenik. I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know what that means. But yeah, I'm committed to nonviolence. It's it, nonviolence is this negative term, so it makes it hard to to call yourself something, right? Well, that's where the peacenik comes in. Yeah, that's I, that's <laughs> what I figured you meant. I mean, I'm a peace advocate. There you go. Yeah, yeah. But we're not pacifists, right? Because we're we're active in our nonviolence. Yeah, and actually, our last episode was on action, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah. And we have some figures to talk about in American history who were nonviolent, but who were active. They weren't pacifists. Let's begin by just talking about sort of the foundation of, of, this, of the discussion, not only for us, but for perhaps the founding fathers and the people who came from Europe originally to come and settle this place that was already settled by the you know, native populations, uh, indigenous peoples but nevertheless came here seeking something. What were they looking for? Well, they say they were looking for religious freedom. They were Christians, and they wanted to practice Christianity in their own way, and they didn't feel free to do that where they lived, and so they came here looking for that freedom of religion. And sort of the root of Christianity is this drama or story of Christ. And Christ, as we all know, but just important to recount, is this figure who did not take on, in a violent way, the occupying force of Rome that had been subjugating his people for however many years. Instead, he creatively and courageously literally took up his cross and became the archetypal symbol for nonviolent resistance um, and sort of voluntarily laid down his life show us the way is not violence. It is rather to conquer violence with love and with courage. 
And that is the wow. core of Christianity. I wonder if we can all agree on that as Christians. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, I agree with you. And this idea of Christ as a, what did you call him? You said he was the a nonviolent resistor, right? Yeah, the archetype of nonviolent resistance. Yeah, that may, yeah, that makes me think of Dr. King, not Christ. And yet Christ was first and King was a follower of Christ. Well, and King is a Christian pastor. He sees it as the core of his being as a Christian to advocate for social change and take actions in a nonviolent way. It's not as if Christ just, you know, laid down his life for no purpose. There was very specific actions that he took that would, you know, ruffle the feathers and and really perhaps even provoke the op- the occupying forces and even the conservative elements within his own culture. He did that on purpose. He wanted to provoke. And so I think what we need to do is is looking at the example of Christ, try to distinguish between conflict and violence. Okay. So violence is this thing where we we dehumanize another person through our actions. Starting with their thoughts, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, but by dehumanizing them or making them, quote-unquote, other or otherizing them, then we make them less than human. We make them less than us. So we have superiority, they have inferiority, and there's this subjugation that we believe is is our right. We have a right to subjugate them for our benefits or our aims. Isn't that interesting? Because even, even the early, the pilgrims, right? They were seeking this religious freedom, and yet they felt like they could subjugate others. And that really becomes the foundation of where I think America goes wrong. It's, it's not in the ideals of, you know, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. It's not that stuff. It's that they pursued that stuff at the expense of others. Yeah, sometimes we think in terms of the end justifies the means, and Christ shows us another way. Yeah, so there's this term that's embraced in Americana, that, which is manifest destiny, and that's essentially ends justify the means. Right. Our destiny is going to, be, is going to have the, uh, the approval of God as we manifest it as a, because we are we have this divine investiture as a as a nation then everything we do must be right so there there's this idea again of manifest destiny and and the important thing to derive from that is that those who are carrying out all these actions in the name of god believed that the ends were good because they were doing them not because they were sanctioned in the Bible or something, but just because they were they were doing them and they were Christians, so they had to be God's will. And that was this this doctrine of manifest destiny. And so, as as settlers and uh, explorers, you know, pushed across the West and displaced indigenous peoples and used slavery to accomplish much of their conquest, they they lost sight of the idea that helped to found this country. I mean, the Declaration of Independence itself references the Bible five times, and we're endowed by our Creator, and we have these inalienable God-given rights. Well, but they're apparently just limited to to white males. 
And so it was in the limiting of, of God's, uh, how do I want to say this? It's in the limiting of our inheritance as children of God to a specific set of people that America starts to go wrong and go off the rails. And so being able to connect what we see today as America with Christianity and saying this is a Christian nation, it doesn't reconcile for a lot of people. It doesn't work for a lot of people because they see the history and it's just not, it doesn't connect. So I'm going to give one example and then I'll let you chime in here, Chris. But there's this famous Nez Perce chief named Chief Joseph the Elder. And he converted to Christianity, uh, like in 1855-ish, somewhere in there. And he, he was able to secure a peace with, with the American generals and, and administrators. Uh, in the, in the, I don't know if it had the Bureau of Indian Affairs back then. Nevertheless, um, he had this peace between his nation and, and America. And it lasted a while, and, and they secured a, a huge tract of land where his people could live. Well, gold was discovered there, and the rest is history. And a bunch of settlers moved in. America reneged on its agreement, took back millions of acres. Chief Joseph looked at that and said, if this is the Christianity that I joined, I, I really don't want any part of that. And of course, I'm paraphrasing uh, because I don't speak Nez Perce. So he, he basically throws the Bible at him and says, forget this. This is, this is not the Christianity that I, that I joined or want any part of. And so he, you know, started this big campaign against the forces that were trying to take away the lands they'd agreed to give his tribe and a lot of military victories and losses. And eventually most of his, his tribe, which was very small in comparison, was completely decimated. And his last speech... <clears throat> Um, is a famous one. Look up the last speech of Chief Chief Joseph. But the, the line there that is kind of the one that is memorable is, I will fight no more forever. And that's essentially mm. saying, I've, I've done everything I can and violence didn't work. And so I will fight no more forever. Wow. And I want to point to Chief Joseph as, as a true American. In, okay. in, in the sense of embodying the Christian ideals and also that that kind of fierce independence uh, and codependence with his tribe on on God, that they were willing to do the things that he felt was part of being a Christian, and then he was betrayed. And I, I want to look at Chief Joseph as an example, uh, and we're going to talk about several other what what we might call patriotic or, or true Americans that are outside the tradition of, you know, just the founding fathers and pilgrims. I like that idea. I like that example too. So Christopher, can you think of other figures that we could possibly highlight as, you know, as we're doing this episode about America, but also about nonviolence? Are there any other figures that come to mind for you? Absolutely, Riley. You know, we've mentioned Dr. King already. We can go into Dr. King a little bit. There's also Henry David Thoreau. There's Frederick Douglass. I'm, I feel compelled to go in chronological order, and yet I'm failing. I don't think that matters as much as, as it might seem. Um, but we do have a tradition in America of, of Christianity and of a Christianity that recognizes and validates and practices nonviolence as a core teaching, as the core teaching of Christ. 
You know, when you mentioned earlier that not only is is it true that Jesus was this nonviolent actor, but he was expected, this was to the chagrin of the people who were expecting him to be a military leader, some kind of military leader, right? Which he wasn't. And this really was, who? how could you win against Rome, whose project, the project of Rome is victory through defeat, right? Through conquering. The, the Pax Romana, the idea of the Roman peace is to, t- is to take over the whole world and bring it under Roman law, and now you have peace. And this fails to recognize the other, right? The idea that somebody might not want to live under Roman law, that they might have their own ideas about how to live. And this is why the pilgrims came over, right? They had their own idea of how they wanted to live, and so they wanted to come over here and, and live their own way, according to their, their own way of thinking and their own faith and their own beliefs. And so Jesus comes, and what does he do? He wins, not by killing, but by dying. And it makes no sense, right? It makes no sense to the human mind that you could win by dying, that you could conquer through death. And we can do the same in Christ. Well, we always point to the, the resurrection as kind of the, the outcome or the ends that justified Christ going willingly to the cross. But if you, and I'm not saying it didn't, take place at all. Um, you know, I, I do believe in resurrection. But I guess what I'm saying is if you took that part out, is it still significant what Christ did? And is it still important? Absolutely. I think it is. Yeah. Yeah, because it's a model. Yeah, it, it's the way, right? He is the way. He's showing the way. He's the way. Yeah. So there's a there's a modern Catholic mystic named Thomas Merton who was who we both enjoy reading because he's a contemplative. And he was training one of his, uh, I, I guess, acolytes how to, how to operate in, in nonviolent means um, so that you could still accomplish things because action was an important element of, of what he did. How could, you, how could you take actions that would be effective but still retain that nonviolent strain of Christianity that is the way? And he actually suggested not being so concerned with the outcomes, just doing what's right. Yes. It's like the opposite of manifest destiny. It really is. That's exactly right. That's a really good point, Riley. You know, and we have a, we have a contemplative today, Richard Rohr, Father Richard Rohr. Let's see, Thomas Merton was a Trappist monk. Richard Rohr is a Franciscan monk. But he really is, I think, the... The, the Thomas Merton of our day. Thomas Merton met his end supposedly by accident, but I think, you know, there, was, there were suspicious circumstances surrounding his death, right? And it, it's not atypical for those who preach nonviolence to be found threatening. Are we sure we should be recording this, Riley? <laughs> you know, so it's, it really is. I mean, so many nonviolent actors meet their end because violence finds nonviolence threatening. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is interesting because most people, when they think of nonviolence, they think it's ineffective. They yeah. o- they always point to that, uh, the example of, well, what are you going to do if someone breaks into your home, da, 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 threatens your wife and children, all that stuff. And there's a total lack of creativity that comes with focusing on immediate or in-the-moment reactions to threat threatening violence 
Right. And so that's where they want to bring the, the discussion or conversation is to those rare moments when you have to react in the moment to some immediate threat of violence. And one of the ideas we talked about for, for today's episode was to actually talk about that. And I think we should save that for another episode. We, we want to talk about what, what you can do, even in those situations where even because of our own commitment to nonviolence, we've talked and, and both of our spouses feel a little bit uncomfortable. They feel threatened somehow, vulnerable, right, that, that we won't protect them. And yet there are ways that we can be creative in meeting that mandate, our responsibility as men to protect them, that don't involve violence. And in fact, one of the most, without spending too much time on this, I really would like to record an episode on this, one of the most talked about, and it's a central story in the Bible, is the exodus, right? Which just means go away, Mm -hmm. go somewhere else. And it's what we tell our kids, right? Mom, my brother's bothering me. Well, go somewhere else. Uh, the Quran says, couldn't you go somewhere else when, when it comes to confrontation? So that's always a solution. But there are others, and we can go into that in, a, in another episode. Thomas Merton was teaching one of his acolytes, one of these nonviolent demonstrators, how to do this. And he said, listen, don't focus on the outcomes. Focus on doing what's right. And that's the better long-term solution. If you have short-term vision of what nonviolence can accomplish, you're inevitably going to run into that situation where the impending threat of violence will overcome your ideals. That's going to happen. There, there definitely will be people that die in nonviolent conflict. If you look at something like Tiananmen Square, you know, or... Uh, the what was that protest in Ohio uh, at the at the university um, where four students were killed during the seventies uh, protesting the Vietnam War? You know you're always going to have those kind of casualties, but the long term, there's far fewer casualties, and nonviolence is actually twice as effective and fast in accomplishing the ends of the protest or the conflict than a violent intervention is. That's proven. If you look at history, Erica Chenoweth, who is a, she's a political scientist, she's done this study, and, and nonviolent actions are twice as effective as violent interventions. And so you can always get scared into believing that nonviolence is, is ineffective because of those short-term occurrences where you know casualties happen. That is going to happen. But it's guaranteed to happen with violence every single time and on a much grander scale. I'd like to talk about Henry David Thoreau. Henry David Thoreau is actually credited by Gandhi for inspiring him in in what he did and what Gandhi did. And he's also the inspiration of Martin Luther King Jr. And so you have, out of of the three of them, the originator of the idea of nonviolent action uh, at least in, you know, of course we have the the Native American example you gave us that's earlier, but at least in this brand of nonviolent resistance is with Thoreau, right? It goes to Thoreau. He gets credit for that from Gandhi and Martin Luther King, and two out of three of these men were American, right? So you have Thoreau and you have Martin Luther King. And so to focus in on Thoreau a little bit, he felt like paying taxes 
was a problem for him in terms of his conscience, in terms of his commitment to nonviolence, whether Christian or otherwise, doesn't matter in this case. For us as Christians, we have that commitment as Christians. Uh, for him, whether he did or not is neither here nor there, but he did have a commitment to nonviolence. And he thought, how can I pay taxes when my taxes are going to the Mexican-American war to kill people? That would make me responsible for the killing of people. And so instead of paying taxes, he ends up going to jail. And he's okay with that. He says, I'm going to go to jail. I'm not going to pay taxes. And that's just an incredible example to me of, of courage, right? This is an example of courage and of doing the right thing without, as you were saying, without thinking about what's going to happen to me next. I'm just doing the right thing. And he may have known what was going to happen to him next. And what he probably couldn't have known is that somebody would pay his taxes for him and he would get out of jail. So he did do that thing, you know, going to jail without thinking about, well, not paying his taxes, without thinking about whether he would go to jail, whether he would stay in jail. He just did it because it was the right thing to do. And that, you know, that's interesting because we've we've done this in America. We've We've been able to sort of equate our justice system and the consequences that come from breaking laws with a sense of morality. And there's a shame and guilt associated with, quote-unquote, going to jail or paying a fine or whatever because you've broken some kind of statute. And that statute has the investiture of, of morality. Whereas if you look at the Bible in the New Testament, there's numerous examples of apostles and you know John the Baptist, for instance, spending real time in jail, having real consequences. John the Baptist was beheaded, for heaven's sake. And and it's not because anything he did was wrong. It's because of what he did was illegal, or even maybe not even technically illegal. Maybe he just pissed off the wrong people. He was speaking truth to power. Yeah, not and it wasn't the power's truth. They didn't like it. The powers that be that sat in that position didn't like a thing he was saying. And and I'm I have a sense that the same was true in Thoreau's case. And he he looked at it as, oh, well, you know, I go to jail. It doesn't mean I'm a bad person. It doesn't mean I did something wrong. In fact, I did something right. And so maybe when we look at the example of people like Thoreau or or other nonviolent protesters who they believed they were doing what was right and ended up in jail, um, maybe we need not to equate their consequences with the rightness of their actions. Yeah, there's, there are a couple of ideas that, that I can bring up that we can maybe go into a little bit at least. So you have the idea from the Stoics that the only thing that is moral, because this is to, to give a different sense of morality, because if, we, if you're going to give up the sense of morality that you have, well, then where does that leave you, right? So here's another idea. The idea from the Stoics, these, these are ancient philosophers, is that the only thing that is moral is to do the right thing. So to do your duty and doing the right thing is to be moral, and it's not consequentialist at all. It's not the consequences that determine the morality of the action. The, the morality of the action is determined by whether or not you do the right thing. And so acting in the way Thoreau acted was very much a stoic way of acting. And another one is the idea of natural law, which goes at least as far back as St. Augustine, right? who's saying, or who said, Lex iniusta non est lex. An unjust law is no law at all. And so it's not the legality 
that that matters in those laws that man makes, but rather this higher law, which is what is right and wrong, which are the dictates of our conscience and the commandments of God who has given us a morality to follow in the in the scriptures, right? Well, you know, the greatest irony of all of this is that the founding fathers and all those freedom fighters were all lawbreakers. And and yet we yes. look at the law today and and say, "Oh, you better not break that because you'll go to jail, which means you're not a good person." Yes. And and yet they were and they were also all natural law well, I don't want to say theorists, they they all believed in the natural law as higher than man-made law. And yet, they went wrong in some sense. Right? It, the intentions, as you pointed out, are good. But the practice, I think there's two problems, right? One you've already mentioned, and that is thinking that those rights don't apply to everyone, right? That not everyone has those same rights whether it be because they're uh, black or whether it be because they are uh, Native American. So, so that's one thing. The other thing is focusing on rights instead of focusing on duties. I was talking about the Stoic idea of the duty to do the right thing. And it may be, it's possible that the Founding Fathers and those who think in, in those terms who are, who are followers of the Founding Fathers in some sense, and I myself am, am, am an admirer and have studied the lives of, of those great men. And again, you have conflict, right? You have, there's conflict between ideas. So one idea and one possibility of where things could have gone wrong a little bit is in focusing on rights instead of focusing on responsibilities. That's one idea. Yeah, I think a lot of those people were theorists more than activists right so yes they they knew in their heart and in fact a lot of their writings revealed this they knew in their heart for instance that slavery was wrong and that it should be abolished i mean even jefferson said that and he had a whole slew of slaves up there on there on monticello that were tending his garden and and whatnot so and and same with george washington i mean there was very few abolitionists among the founding fathers i think John Adams might have been the exception more than the rule. So, you know, that they had inherited some very skewed ideas about who these God-given rights applied to. And and for that, right. And this goes all the way back to Aristotle, who was who made the argument for for slavery as as natural, as something that's part of the right, that's something that's justified. But, you know, here's another idea, Riley, and you brought this up in our uh, pre-show discussion, and that is, what are our actual rights? Because there's another problem, right, is to understand correctly what our rights are. And so when it comes to rights, we wanted to bring up the Beatitudes, right? Yeah, I just had this, I don't know if it's a crazy thought, I'm sure someone else has thought of it before I did, but, you know, we have our Bill of Rights that tells us we have, you know, the right to free speech or the right to assembly or or whatever. You know, we already had a a sort of bill of rights in terms of our inheritance from God, and it, it's really already contained in the eight beatitudes. And we like to talk beatitudes a lot because it's it's really central to the Christian theology. He he embodied and lived the things that he taught in those Beatitudes. 
And the way they're taught is to essentially tell those people. It's not an if-then statement necessarily. It's always that you are already comforted. You have already been filled. The kingdom of God is already within you. And so he's telling them, these are their, he's telling his disciples, these are your inheritances. As children of God, this is your reality, your present reality. You have only to wake up to it. Now, he may, he may have told them, this is how you wake up to it, shedding identities, mourning with others, um, operating in a spirit of meekness, desiring to be filled with the spirit. These are the ways to awaken to your present reality, but the reality is already present. So we can say that these these beatitudes, these blessings are our rights as children of God, right? Yeah. That's an interesting idea, Riley. I'd actually never thought of that. It makes perfect sense. And if you expand, because the Bill of Rights is part of the Constitution, it's just an enumeration, right? But if you expand the idea into yes. the whole constitution then the Be- then the beatitudes are just a part of the sermon on the mount which comprises our christian constitution what is it occurs to me that we we haven't really brought up what's contemplative about all this yeah for me it's just thinking through Let's go into that. what what america represents for me so, you know, while we might celebrate mm-hmm. one way of being an American or what we think it means to be an American, my thought process is trying to throw that on its head a little bit because that really doesn't speak to me. The traditional way of being an American doesn't really speak to me. But the way of a Dr. King or a Thoreau or Chief Joseph, those are ways of, those are more American to me than the history of subjugation and manifest destiny and that sort of thing. Right. For me, Riley, another idea is just noticing, because contemplation is about noticing, right? It's just noticing how much of my identity might be wrapped up in some of the stories, not the ones that that you shared, that we've shared here, that I think are really good examples acknowledging, of course, that the, that the, even the men that we've talked about were imperfect. And so no person is two-dimensional, right? They're not flat. And this is something that I, I really recommend. I love reading biography, and I recommend reading biography. And, and this is part of my children's education. As a, as a homeschool dad, I've assigned them to read biographies to understand that that people are complicated, and we, we are complicated, and so we are going to have our failings, and yet there are principles, and there is courage, there are virtues in, act, in action, and there are examples, and, and there are moral failings too. But for me, one of the things that's contemplative about this conversation is to, to be able to think in terms of, when am I really acting from where my core identity is American? from my schooling, from my culture, from my context? And when is it Christian? When am I coming from a place of, I'm Christian, and therefore this is how I should act? And do I conflate the two? Do I know how to distinguish them? Do I notice 
when I'm being one thing or the other. What is my true identity? What is my false self? What are the identities that I need to empty myself of, to use the Beatitudinal language again, so that I can be filled with the Spirit, so that I can be filled with a true identity? These are contemplative questions to me on this matter. Well, I love that. Let's go down that that rabbit hole a little bit. If we were to set up a sort of Venn diagram to see where these so-called identities line up or overlap, so you've got a Christian bubble and you've got an American bubble. And for American, we're going to go ahead and say America is what people, you know, in a majority sense, think it is, you know, with all the, the patriotism and rights and and all that stuff and uh, the, the the light to the rest of the world and all that. Revolution, so, manifest destiny, all of that, right? All that stuff, And it can right? even include, it can include all the examples we've given too, right? All of that's part of it America. Should. Yeah, it should. Yeah, that's that's where we want that Venn diagram to see where is the overlap. Right. Where is the overlap of understanding what America is and what Christianity is? So we, we can we can look to the the New Testament life of Christ and the things he taught and say, this is what Christianity is. And if you were to boil it down to a few things, what what would you say those are? Well, the core of the teachings of Christ really are in the Sermon on the Mount. I wonder if we can say, Riley, because of what you're trying to do with this Venn diagram, that we can just bring this out up front, is that not everything that is American is going to be Christian, that, there, that the overlap won't be complete, right? It won't be total. Exactly. And so this is a contemplative exercise that we're setting up here that's designed to have us think about and contemplate and to notice what in our identity as Americans may not be Christian, right? That's full disclosure. Exactly. And I'm actually, I'm going to do this right now. I, I've got my little notepad next to me that I use to keep track of things. And I'm going to, I, I'm creating two bubbles. And in one of them, I'm, I'm labeling it Christian. And the other bubble, I'm la- labeling American. It's a great thought practice for somebody, a, a contemplative practice to sit through this and, and really diagram out what are all the, the key terms that one thinks of when they hear the word American? Well, they think of freedom. And Riley, this isn't something that we can... Our, our whole idea here is inspired for this episode is inspired by the 4th of July, but we can do this with any and all identities. This is a great exercise. We can yeah, compare. We really our, should. Yes. We can compare our identities, whatever other identities we have, with our Christian identity and find out where there's dissonance and where there's consonance. Perfect. So on, on the far left of the American bubble, the part that doesn't overlap necessarily, I'm going to write down some words that come to mind when I, when I think of the word American. So I put freedom, I put military, I put rights. Um, what other thoughts do you have, Christopher? Well, you know, actually, if I can go into one of those a little bit, it occurred to me right away that, that freedom, it can be understood variously, right? And so is freedom intrinsic or is it extrinsic? Because if it's extrinsic and it depends on militarism, the Roman way, then it goes over there where you put it, right? But if mm-hmm. we can think in terms of a Stoic idea of freedom being intrinsic, and it really comes from doing the right thing, where you, you, where you have Henry David Thoreau in jail and he's free. He's free because he's Maybe not that's subject. liberation? Yeah, he's not subject to any kind of false idea, right? So that's interesting. So back to your question. What was your question again? Would that be more like liberation? Liberation from 
from false identities, perhaps, right? But you had another question. You were asking me, what would I put? Oh, yeah, yeah. What I'm are not some looking at your diagram. You I'm, I'm not making my, my own. It's too bad this isn't a video with a whiteboard, huh? No, it's fine. Just name off some terms, you know, and we can put them in the overlap section. We can put them in the sure. non-overlap section. But, so, you know, this is just to get people thinking about it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so, so what the one we've been talking about all along is this idea that that being American is being Christian somehow, right? That, 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 that at least in its conception, America is or was or was meant to be a Christian nation. And over on the other side, we have that Christianity means nonviolence, and yet on the American side, we have a lot of violence, which is, again, justified in the mind of Christians by in terms of rights, in terms of freedom, in terms of all these other things, right? I, I would put on the Christian side, I would put meekness, humility. Yes, of course. Do those come, I mean, do those speak to you as being American things? Not really, no. Not certainly not today. Certainly not today. And you know, here's one that can go on either side, but again would be defined differently because obedience is in some sense part of citizenship in any nation, including America. And obedience is part of who and what Jesus is and does, right? But who are we? Are we fearing God more than men or men more than God? So it depends, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It depends on what you That's mean by idea. obedience. Obedience to whom? Or to who? What, what about charity? Charity is very much a part of both too, right? And yet, do we go as far as Christ would have us go? So I think we can be charitable to the idea of being an American and include charity there. And it's certainly on the side of Christ. And then the question becomes, how charitable are we? Do we really go far enough as Americans? Or do we have this sense of... Because I think part of the idea of being American today and it's very much part of the Protestant ethic, so it's been with us a long time, is this idea that, that at least in its current iteration, says something like, well, those people who don't have, they're responsible for, for not having somehow. And so then we withhold our charity in that sense, right? That's, that's something that's part of being an American today, and that's not really the Christian way. So I think that the, the outcome of this that could be really beneficial is to find all of those overlapping areas. So we identified charity as a possible overlapping. I think most Americans are pretty charitable people. We are. willing to help out their neighbors. Uh, I think most Americans and Christians are pretty obedient by nature. And we just need to find out, like you said, what are we obedient to? Who are, who are we... Um, you know, who is our master in that sense? Uh, we talked about rights, like the Beatitudes, you know. I mean, if, we, if we're really boiling down the rights to a sense of responsibility for loving and caring for our neighbor, well, those type of rights are both American and Christian or yes. could be construed as such. And, and then you mentioned freedom as well. Yeah, and when it comes to our charity, again, are we being charitable enough? Now, Americans are charitable. You know, I remember a study that was presented to me at BYU as an undergraduate student. I attended this some kind of symposium or colloquium or lecture where some men had done some research, some scholars had done some research, and they found that even though we are taxed, because we're heavily taxed, it's interesting how our, our whole revolution starts over what is really a comparatively small tax, and now we have, counting all our taxes, adding them all up, about 50% of our income is, is goes to taxes. And so even with that, Americans give. 
these these scholars presented evidence that that said that they actually found surprising. They had to be honest as scholars in presenting the the data and what it actually says, and and that is that as Americans, even after we're taxed heavily, we are generous and giving and charitable, and that's a beautiful thing. And yet, we still have to ask ourselves as Christians, and especially because that's about Americans in general. I have to ask about myself. Am I being charitable enough? Can I be more charitable? Do I have some of these ideas of of Americana that that actually run contrary to Christ's teachings that hold me back from being more charitable? These are the questions we have to ask ourselves. So if we're going to equate America with our Christian identity, and and basically say America is a Christian nation, then we really need to focus on this overlapping area and say, this is the America that we envision. This is the America that we are taking action to bring uh, to reality, to fruition. To embody ourselves. Exactly. This is the America that is, that we're willing to um, take and, and, you know, stand into conflict and not to die for Riley, but to live for to live well or both, right? I mean, if if the conflict that that you're in is for this America of courage, bravery, rights of the many, obedience to God, charity for our neighbors, peace, if that's the America that you want and it causes conflict with the powers that be, you have to be willing to stand so in that it. place. Yeah, you know, I said not to die for, but to live for. I really meant not to kill for, but to live for. Yes. 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 I, we, we should be willing to die for it, as Christ did. He's asked us to follow him and to take up our cross. And so, yes, if this idea of being a Christian does come into conflict with the powers that be, then as Thoreau, we must go to jail. As Christ, we must go to our own deaths uh, to follow Christ in all things. And, of course, there are many steps in between. And, and we don't have to necessarily go to jail. We don't have to necessarily die, but we do have to do the right thing. And we have to be willing to do it without thinking about whether or not we will go to jail or die. That's the example that Thoreau gave us is to do the right thing. That's the example that Christ gave us is to do the right thing, regardless of what will happen, regardless of what consequence will follow, especially when it comes to that question of whether we fear man or whether we fear God. We must fear God in that you know, when, when we have that choice put before us more than man. So for those out there who adopt and actively embody both of these identities, American and Christian, the practice that we really want to encourage is for you to evaluate within yourself where the overlap is and where it isn't. Yes. And if it's, if it's not, overlapping well what can we extricate from our lives what can we shed from our identity that would make us more christian and improve the ideal of of maybe what america was meant to be but it hasn't ever really fully become i love that we can as gandhi said we can become the change we want to see in the world there's a quote from Pope Francis that I wanted to share about nonviolence, and I think it relates to this because America can be creative. I mean, that's the whole reason for having the amendment process and a legislature and courts and all that stuff is to to be able to work out the ideal. Now, that doesn't always happen. 
and we've got a lot of momentum in certain areas that goes in the wrong direction. But that was the intent of at least having all those those balancing checks and balances of power and all that stuff is so that we can approximate the ideal. Well, Pope Francis said nonviolence requires the willingness to face conflict head on, to resolve it, and to make it a link in the chain of a new process. So I look at that overlapping area and the people that embody that, the Thoreaus, the Dr. Kings, those type of people are, they were willing to face conflict head on in the pursuit of change or resolving conflict, uh, resolving violence without violence to make their story a link in the chain of a new process. And because of them, yes, that, that speaking to that link, because of them, while they're no longer with us, what they accomplished by being willing to give their lives to, not just give up their lives, but give their lives to and ultimately give up their lives to the, this ideal, is that we've moved closer to it as a people, as a nation, and as, and as humanity. And as much as we've put labels on these things for this discussion, because again, we're, so, we're you know right around that July 4th time period, you could very easily replace American with any other name of another country or Christian with Zion or whatever. I mean, what we're looking for is the ideal. Yes. And acknowledging that we don't currently have the ideal is a call to action for everyone. So one other great American that we wanted to kind of call to mind is is Mark Twain. He embodied a lot of the creative genius that people think of when they think of, you know, America and the and the 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 things that it pumps out, the creative flow of America. And Mark Twain really embodied a lot of that artistically uh from a from a literary standpoint. And he's got this amazing I, would you call it a poem or prose, or what would you call it? Well, it really is a prayer. It says it's a prayer, and it really is a prayer. Yeah, it's a prayer. It is prose. It's not It's not in verse. Right. And and he held back on the publishing of that, right? Until I don't know the history of wa- it. I think he wanted it published after his death. Um, oh, interesting. Anyway, uh, I don't know if I mentioned it's called The War Prayer. And it was it was written later in his life— and it was supposed to be kind of a response to the Spanish-American War because Twain was, I don't know if he, w- he would be described as, you know, a pacifist or nonviolent, but he certainly saw the hypocrisy of war and he, he wrote about it. And so I, I think that Masterfully. I'm pretty sure he held back the publishing of this till after his death in 1910. Yeah, he wrote about it masterfully, Riley. You know, rhetorically speaking, it's a masterpiece. It, it has this power to, to affect you. It re, it's too long to, for us to read here on the show, and, and there's an experience to reading it. You have to experience it for yourself. So I just pulled this up. When asked if he was going to uh, publish it, he said, no, I have told the whole truth in that, and only dead men can tell the truth in this world. It can be published after I am dead. Wow. Only dead men can tell the truth in this world. You know, that reminds me of a quote by George Santayana that has been misattributed to Plato. It appears at the beginning of the movie Black Hawk Down, and it is attributed to Plato there, and so maybe that's 
whether it was already attributed to Plato or misattributed to Plato, uh, and that's how it ended up there, or maybe it's because of the movie, because a lot of times people haven't read and they get these ideas from movies. And it's from George Santayana, who was a Spanish-American. He's another American. He was an American by choice, Spanish by birth, American by choice. And he said, only the dead have seen the end of war. And so that Mark Twain quote reminded me of that quote. Well, I think what the the war prayer, and we invite our listeners to go seek it out, read it. It's very powerful. But what it will call to mind for you is perhaps some of the dissonance that we that we internalize but never really face. And so as as, as we've sat in our congregations in the last couple of days, particularly yesterday, and sung our patriotic hymns and and celebrated our our country's victories and whatnot. What the war prayer does is encourages these parishioners to reconsider the source of their patriotic and religious fervor and their motivations for war and to consider that every conflict has another side. And so he goes into sort of some grisly details describing what they're really hoping for in praying for victory for their side. What they're really hoping for is destruction for the other side. And that's war always has those two sides. It always has victory and defeat. And the defeat side is something we don't often confront, and that's what's confronted in the war prayer. And so as we think about the history of our country, you know, we we can certainly celebrate the underdog status of America and, you know, the 3% taking on the largest military power in the world and, and being victorious and all that stuff. But we have to also acknowledge the last you know century of conflict and warfare that we've been involved in, where we've been not the you know oppressed minority or whatever, but we've been the, the overwhelming superpower in a lot of those conflicts. And, and there's another side to that. And so perhaps we can start to think about that overlap of Christianity and Americanism and, and think about the, envision the America we'd rather see in the next century or during our own lifetimes. And that would be the, the contemplative practice we would ask you to go through, I guess. And it, it applies to us, too. We can always be reminded of that as well. But Seek Out the War Prayer by Mark Twain. Read that and maybe even get back to us with your comments on that. Tell us what you thought about that, if that was a profitable exercise for you. Yeah, if it's new to you, the, the war prayer, reading the war prayer really is a powerful experience, and you will have a reaction to it one way or the other, and we'd love to hear from you. Well, that's about all we've got to share with you today. We hope this episode has caused you to think a little bit about what patriotism might mean for you and how Americanism overlaps or does not with your Christian beliefs, and we hope that, that you'll come away with a new perspective on what each of those mean for you. And that you might be the change that you want to see in the world and make a better America and a better world for, for, for all of us and for our children. Amen. Well, thanks, Christopher. I've uh, enjoyed this discussion. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>